Hello and welcome to the Geek Stories podcast with me, Chris, and... M- me? Is it me? Or have you got like, have you replaced me for this episode? No, is no it's, it's still you. Yes, I'm still in, ladies and gentlemen. I'm still on the podcast. It's still you. <laughs> um, it's still you is the three word phrase that golfers never want to hear. Why is that? Because if you putt and then your ball is still further away... Uh, oh, you can- than the other player and they say it's still you then it means you're not doing very well um so anyway look at this we've got music sport no doubt philosophy probably and i mean you know this is what a start to the, uh, an episode a podcast if if you're a brand new listener whew, this it's like this all the time it's an absolute journey, this. It's no, a ride. It's a wild ride. <laughs> it's a wild ride. You won't have enough superlatives to describe this podcast. <laughs> so how are you doing anyway, Mr. Payne? How's your week been? Yeah, very well. Very well. Have you um, been to any gigs? Um, no, and you said that in... Um, an intonation which indicated that you oh. might well have been to a gig. Have you oh. been to a gig, Alex? Yeah, yeah, we know, we know. I've been to a gig. Genuinely, I couldn't remember if you'd been, if you'd shot a gig, or since our last episode, you'd shot Carl uh, Barrett from Libertines. Yeah. Um, but you haven't been to a gig in the past week or two. No, but I'm getting itchy fingers. I want to, I want to photograph um, another gig very soon. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to be getting the diary out and seeing seeing what's what so you haven't got anything booked in yet not at the moment no nothing come on manchester venues book this man (laughs) so yeah i yeah i have i have been to a gig and it was very unexpected um my wonderful beautiful friend uh one of my best friends in the world from cardiff uh james gave me a call last minute and said i'm heading up to manchester and we're gonna go and um hang out with idols and watch watch idols and um he's friends he's friends with joe the lead singer and uh had a weekend off so came up so i had a lovely afternoon with him we had uh ramen obviously of course Why wouldn't you when in manchester <laughs> and then in the evening uh saw their live gig and um i've, I've always had my eye on idols but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend. I don't know all the tracks. I, I'm very much sort of aware of all the singles. Um, but I can't, I can't pretend I'm a, I'm a diehard fan. And it was, it was quite revelatory. Uh, it, it, I was mesmerized from the start of the gig to the very end. So, so if, if any of you know Idols, and if you don't, actually, if you don't, go and have a listen. I know people refer to them as post-punk. I'm not sure that's the that's accurate, but it gives you a vague idea. The drummer is is just brilliant and and really is that sort of cliche, that driving force. Um, and then you have the bass player who stands very close to the drums but doesn't move. Or one of them. Right, okay. Yeah, which I which I think is sort of quite fascinating. Um and and then you've got the two guitarists who are unreal they do not stop from the moment they get on get on stage and there's no doubting their efforts and their commitment to playing that music and then if you know anything about idols they 
they have Joe Talbot, one of, I can now say, currently one of the best front people of a band out there, I think. Like I've, I've said before on the podcast, when I saw Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and I couldn't take my eyes off Nick Cave, and I just watched him wherever he went, couldn't take my eyes off. And it was similar with Joe, not quite the same because those guitarists are doing so much. I want to, I want to watch what they're up to, but they came on and there was a genuine sincerity. I, I don't doubt that what Joe is singing about, he really means. And he's singing about all kinds of things, masculinity, toxic masculinity, really. Um, homophobia, uh, race issues. It was, it was very similar to when I was younger and was going to the early Mannix gigs mm -hmm. and there was sort of activism yeah. and great music plus activism. And that's, that's what I felt. There was some dark brooding musical madness that just felt, yes, punk, rock and roll, get lost in that. But then also it sort of felt evangelical in a way of if Joe starts a cult or runs for office or for BM, whatever, I'm, I'm going to be right behind him. And I felt sort of uh, compelled to, uh, to look at political issues. This sounds really, really rubbish and trite, but I almost wish I was a teenager in that mosh pit because I think experiencing idols, that, that must be incredible. And why didn't you go into the mosh pit? What's, I mean, you're only 49. Do you know what, <laughs> do you know what I did though? I actually, I did. I went all over the place. I, I bet you did, mate. <laughs> I've seen no, you I go got all over the place. I was throwing kids everywhere. Um, and that, that actually was, was interesting. The, um, the average person there, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the average person was because oh, there was good. absolute mix of male, female, black, white, and every age, there were some, there were some youngsters there, and like me, there were some oldies. And I thought that was, that was brilliant. Well, that bodes well for, for their longevity if they've got such a yeah. wide range. I mean, because um, I mean, if we do think back to um, Britpop, um, mm. you, thinking back now, you could kind of tell that that it wasn't going to last because everyone was. 18, 19, 20, really. Um, hmm. I, I, I didn't, well, maybe that's because I was down the front the whole time. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I, I couldn't have imagined going up the, up the back, but as I've mentioned in previous pods, now I can't imagine anything worse than being right the way down the front. Uh, <laughs> Do you so. know what you've made? Yeah. You, you've said something that I don't think has crossed my mind about Britpop. I think there were a few bands that we just knew sort of, they transcended Britpop, you know, Blur, Oasis, Pulp, um, yeah. and, you know, I stand corrected with other bands. In fact, Shed 7, you know, we, we've had Rick Witter from, from yeah. Shed 7 on this podcast, and and they're as successful now. They're playing some of their biggest tours. So yeah. whatever they had, you know, the, the, there's longevity. But you're right. I think a, a lot of those Britpop gigs, it was just our peers. It was our peers, unless we were just young and ignorant. I don't know. Well, we were that as well. Um, mm. But um, just in terms of it as a, you know a cultural movement or whatever, it wasn't. I mean that's that's being a bit too grand about it. But um, the majority of 
bands, yeah, they're still going just now. So you can go and see Sleeper, you can go and see Echo Belly, you can go and see... But that's only very, very recently, isn't no, it? No, exactly, that's what I mean. So basically, yeah. they, they, um, there hasn't been that longevity, um, apart from the big names. Uh, Suede I would put in there as well, I think, maybe. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Um, uh, no, that's a good point. Because actually, as well, with Idols, this is their fourth album. Mm. And it's it's their second in two years, which is quite unusual these these days. Considering one of those years didn't exist, basically. That's right, uh, absolutely. And and actually, it's it's this tour now that they're playing their biggest dates. Mm. They sold out Cardiff Arena. Were you saying they were um, doing something like four nights at the Barrowlands? For uh, yeah, again, could could be three, but it was definitely three, if not four nights at Barrowlands, wow. and they they did three nights. At Victoria Warehouse Manchester and it's I think Victoria Warehouse um, which is always all standing is three and a half thousand so this is a big tour so yeah longevity I think they've got it but do you know what it it, it was it was right up my alley Chris yeah it, it really um, really appealed to me and it was a mixture of things the lighting the lighting sign I thought was incredible I think it had to review in the MEN or maybe enemy or somewhere and they underplayed the lighting. Ooh, too simple. So I'm like, no, it was, it really helped capture, capture mood. It was very clever. Yeah. Um, and then the look, the sound, and then what I took away mentally from it, 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 it was pretty much a, um, a, a perfect performance for me. It sounds like they rattled your cage a bit which um, it's always <laughs> a good thing, but that leads us on to um, our guest for, for this week um mm. because at some point we do talk about you know trying to regain that feeling that you get when you're 18 yes. and going to a gig and yes and at some points you know when you're a bit older you feel like you're never going to get that again just because you've got no you know when you're 18 you've got no cares or you you know not as many as you do when you've got you know kids and mortgage yeah. and jobs yeah. and all that kind of stuff and um, but it shows that this sounds like you've managed to um, kind of re- rekindle that, and and our guest yeah, today yeah. talks about that as well, which is really interesting. Who's the, who's the guest? Who's the guest this week, Alex? So let's be honest. There, when we started this podcast, this guest was, if not first, second. I mean, at least in the top one, as Brian Clough, you know, would say, were on my mind to get on the podcast, and it's the truly brilliant Pete Perfides. And as it happens, Pete, Pete's podcast, which was the Times Weekly music podcast, was the very first podcast I ever listened to. And off the top of my head, I think it would have been about 2005, maybe six. Mm-hmm. And it was just brilliant. And he had wonderful interviews with all kinds of guests and they were always interesting and if you uh, uh, had heard of them or not heard of them pete just manages just to get so much information and so much character uh, from his guests and i love the way pete writes and i love his passion he he's you know we're very much part of his tribe i think chris he just loves his music live music recorded music well here we go with episode 31 it is pete perfides 
Welcome to the Gig Stories podcast, as always, with me and him. And today, this uh, this is just so, so exciting, because when Chris and I first decided we were going to do this podcast, this person was genuinely top of my list uh, from the moment we, we said, right, let's do it. He's also the man responsible for the very first podcast I ever listened to, the Times Music Weekly podcast. He's a wonderful musical journalist and writer, documentary maker, Mr. Vinyl Revival, autobiography, broken Greek radio DJ, Pete Perfides. How are you, lovely man? Well, after that intro, I'm I'm flying high. I'm, but <laughs> I, I'm maybe too high. Maybe. Is there uh, anything you can't do? Come on, Pete. Well, um, I, like you, you've clearly never played football with me. Um, <laughs> you know what? I was just I was just going to say he's all right at football too. But don't put yourself down, Pete. Have we played football together? No. Do you know what we we almost did? We nearly did when I had my um, my short spell living in London before the BBC rudely right, took me yeah. to Manchester. Yeah. Are you still yeah. playing? Uh, very rarely. I mean, the the recovery time it gets pretty long when you get to my age, and uh, so I'm constantly. Um, trying to sort of stretch my glutes so any any sort of any idle moment uh if i'm sort of like walking around the neighborhood then if i see a a road sign that's kind of at the right height for me to kind of haul my my left leg onto it and then lean forward to get <laughs> quick glute stretch then that's me and i do that in the hope that i might be able to save my football career <laughs> Do you walk past a, a game in the park on the, you know, just hoping that a ball will stray into your path? Yeah. Me? Yeah. You're a player short. Yeah, absolutely. I always sort of like, yeah, I always try and return. I always, I always feel nervous when I have to, when I sort of, when I try and execute an accurate pass back to the small children that are gazing on at me and just in the hope that they might say, yeah, come over here. You're clearly, you're clearly <laughs> not too old to join us. And, uh, oh. See, I, it's so nerve-wracking in that moment, isn't it? It's the worst, it is, moment, yes. especially with the kids. And especially seeing, I don't know if you've seen that footage of Ellis James, where he, he kicks the ball to the kids and it just clocks him straight in the knackers. And the kid. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 and they catch it on camera. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. So no, I stay away from that now. Stay away from that. Thank you, Pete, for finding time, because you just have, I'm going to guess, a crazy schedule. Because you are all over the place doing lots of wonderful things. We, we all have we all have these days, don't we? I mean, we're all sort of spread quite thinly because uh, part of it is, you know, for good reasons, for nice reasons, you know, because there are so many kind of nice, nice things like this that you're kind of asked to do. And, you know, it's hard, I can't bear the idea of not doing it. And uh, and writing, I try and do as, write, as much writing as possible because it, it's the thing I do. But, you know, when you get old, when you go, I'm 52, and I've noticed actually the admin of life, the admin of life gets in the way of the fun bits. So, you know, like, and it must be true for anyone. So like, you know, the the quarterly tax return comes around awfully quickly. And then just the paper, you know, so much paperwork comes in. And like, okay, so that's true of me. That's true of me. Then imagine I'm really kind of getting an, not to compare myself with these people, but I'm really getting an understanding of why musicians who were in bands that would just release like an album a year, 30 years ago, are now only only able to sort of release an album every five, five, five years or something. Because yes. you drag, what happens as you get older is you're dragging a lot of dead weight around. 
some of it literal in my case, <laughs> but also, you know, the dead weight of accumulated admin and kind of, yeah, and sort of, you know, messages that you have to respond to or else someone might arrest you or something, you know, or, you know, for whatever bill that you haven't paid or parking <laughs> charge. I mean, there's always something, isn't there? Yeah. So, when, when did life get so rock and roll, Pete? Of course, you know, it, that's why, you know, like our heroes are sort of taking so long to make new albums because there's just so much shit to sort out, isn't there? So when you were when you were um, writing, well, certainly writing Broken Creep, I'm just interested in your, your writing regime anyway. Do, is it, where, do you like a deadline? Do you write when inspired? Do you set aside a couple of hours and you don't move until you've reached a certain number i mean in terms of the the, the autobiography was it yeah. you just sat down and went right was born and then worked yeah. from there or well, when i was well i uh, the first thing i did i so I, I, it was mostly written in cafes because cafes no one can really find you in a cafe so that's great you know you're sort of like and it's a real treat to be in a cafe writing because once in a while someone will you know, will come over to you and say, would you like another coffee? And that's great, you know. And uh, <laughs> um, so um, with the book, I just started, I sort of, I never thought I'd ever really write a book. Um, I never thought, I thought that was something that like quote unquote proper writers did. But at the same time, I sort of thought that there was a story uh, there. I wanted to write, a, so it's a childhood memoir and it's, it's and I wanted to write about, a book about how, you know, pop music is very crucial in sort of, you know, allowing you to, it's, an, it's a space in which you can really work out who you are. And the way you work out who you are is by by virtue of the records that you choose, the records that you choose are sort of telling you something about yourself and about your story. And I think that's the reason why you love them. Yeah. And I really wanted to give give that version of the story of how we fall in love with music. And it happens very organically. It happens in a very unselfconscious way because in the first 10, 15 years of our lives, we are very un unselfconscious about the, 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 the music that we love. And I really wanted to get back into that headspace. And I'm very fortunate. I've got a good, I've got a good memory of my early years. So I felt it was something I could do. Of course, the, the great thing about music is it takes you there. You remember who you were. You remember what you were, what your fears were, what your hopes were. They're all kind of baked into the relationship you have with the records that you love. Yeah. I was going to ask you that because for, I, I know we all experience things differently. Is it a physical reaction for you? Like for me, I can. So when I hear Lionel Richie's Dancing on the Ceiling, any tracks from that album, which yeah. was... Uh, a, an early gift to me one of my first albums yeah I remember where I was in our living room how our living room looked but also how I felt and um the heat from the house weird things like that it's a physical yeah. manifestation to me is that is that how you uh, react to sort of musical memories yeah um a little more love by Olivia Newton-John is a case in point when I listen to a little more love I can smell panini stickers. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. I know that it's around the time that it, that coincides with the time that I was, uh, that I was quite obsessed with collecting uh, my panini football stickers. And yeah. um, so, and um, 
and so things like that and just that's it's quite that whole synesthetic kind of um spell that overcomes you when you kind of when you go back to uh record especially from the earlier uh, years in your life oh so, yeah, yeah totally absolutely yeah. i i've got one with um uh, the land of make-believe bucks fizz and <laughs> I, I associate it with i can remember where the christmas tree was in in the room in my house in scotland and i remember yeah. being under the tree and i remember being a, a naughty child and there was a present that was under the tree and i remember you know just touching it and going oh what's that and and it was a batman car i remember that but i've got a taste as well because i remember i was eating a, a packet of um golden wonder cheese and onion um <laughs> you know but i i associate all of that with that piece of music and and it's love it's all the better for it i think do you know what i feel like i'm in a safe space here oh yeah we are because when i hear dr hook sexy eyes or when you're in love I can feel my hand because I touched the iron. My mum was ironing. I was a little toddler at home and Dr. Hook was playing in the background. And for whatever reason, you know, as a three-year-old or, or however old I was, I just touched the iron and burnt my hand. Oh, and whenever wow. I hear, and Dr. Hook was playing in the background. And whenever I hear Dr. Hook, I immediately feel, oh, burnt right hand. <laughs> the iron. Flesh. Yes. I mean, you know. What a visceral response to Dr. Hook. <laughs> The Land of Make Believe was apparently written about Thatcherism. Do you know? Do you know this? It was written about no. Yeah, the people who were Andy Hill and Nicola. What was I can't remember what her surname was, but they wrote it about the kind of the um, the sort of promises of of, of wealth and and prosperity uh, that um, the the kind of false promise. It was a sort of slightly. Um, so, sarcastic song about you know this kind of new age that margaret thatcher was usher ushering in so uh so that's quite you know i found that out um, not know that a couple of years ago they were a cracking band cracking band box face oh, yeah i mean that's yeah maybe i'd get i should get them at my imaginary festival which i think we're going to talk about later on oh well we'll do do it with uh and because i've interviewed andy parisi a couple of times and um he you know he he drummed for for bucks fizz for several several yeah. years yeah yeah several years and he kind of took me down a wormhole of you know looking at the lesser known bucks fizz stuff certainly the stuff that he was playing at the time and yeah great band really good yeah yeah one of my, yeah i've got one of my i uh, i hear talk you know which was slightly which was a very minor hit for them mm. in 1985 late 1985 is a massive huge favorite of mine yeah same great lost fleetwood mac song doesn't it it's yeah. kind of got that kind of adult slightly kind of um sort of complicated emotional sophistication that you know you kind of you also go to ABBA for so yeah and I'm, I'm baffled as to why Steps never covered it because it is it's absolutely yeah. Steps through and through that song isn't it yeah yeah for a sort of mature kind of relaunch that would have been perfect for them but yeah that's why you know we should be A&R men and but we've kind of sadly we never got the call did we no <laughs> Not too late. Do you know the biggest Bucks Fizz fan I know in my life? Who? Justin Fletcher, Mr. Tumble. Really? Wow. What Justin doesn't know about Bucks Fizz isn't worth knowing. <laughs> wow. Really? And he's quite sort of like upfront about it. It's sort of like, totally. oh, that's nice. Do you know what? I'm surprised and also not surprised in equal measure. Oh, he knows. He, he, he knows his, uh, he knows his, I mean, grief. 
this is really chat for a pub, but the son of Guy Fletcher, you know, Guy Fletcher, the only um, British songwriter to write a single for Elvis. and um, Really? Well, I didn't know this. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, a lovely, a lovely moment, especially for, and I know I have some sort of my old CBeebies parents that are listeners. Um, I had this lovely moment where myself, Andy, Mr. Maker and Justin, we went to see the Jersey Boys in London not long after it opened because um, one of the songs, which was just on the tip of my tongue that's gone, but I'll get to it, um, was written by Justin's dad. He wrote a song for Frankie Valley, um, and they used it in Jersey Boys. And it's the it's the really oh, it's the heartbreaking song. And it, I don't know if you've seen the show. Um, I'd love to. It's oh, it's a fabulous show. It's yeah, absolutely fantastic. And he's yeah. just lost his daughter, um, and he sings this just beautiful song. Uh, oh, it'll come to me. And it was just really nice. Oh, witnessing watching, that with Justin, yeah, watching Justin watching that, be yeah, amazing. watching that, thinking, Oh, my, my dad wrote this. What a, yeah, well, there's a random one for you in the podcast. Oh, so, <laughs> so, Pete, want to get stuck in, and before we we ask you sort of about more recent times, hmm. I mean, please, anyone listen, check out Pete's book, Broken Greek, and you'll find out more in depth answers to what we're going to ask now. But if we take you back. When did you fall in love with music and sort of when did that turn into you going to live music? Well, I don't know what 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 the criteria are for a first gig, because does it have to be the first gig that you kind of actually bought tickets for yourself? So, it, you know, would it so if it was a gig you went to with your parents, would that count? I don't know. What would you? To- totally. We, we have this conversation because the, you're right. There's different answers. Chris and I. Uh, both had similar upbringings in as much as we both grew up playing instruments and our parents took us from very early age to sort of classical concerts. My mum would take me and get, would pay a few pounds to sit in the gods in St. David's Hall in Cardiff. And I'd watch, you know, Vivaldi's Four Seasons or whatever. And then of course there's the, the first gig that my parents paid for me, which was Michael Jackson. And then the first gig I paid for myself was the shaman in Newport center. And you just, you have all these. So but yeah, what yeah, is yeah. the first, what, what is the first live concert you remember or live music you remember? Um, the first live concert I remember, I've got a very, very dim memory of, uh, of coming, accompanying my mum to the Birmingham Odeon to see a, a Greek composer and songwriter and his band, uh, Mikis Theodorakis. And that was, that was, I remember, but I don't remember too much about it because I remember falling asleep three songs in. And uh, <laughs> it would have been a blessed relief for my mum because then she could have just enjoyed the gig. But then, um, but then there were sort of things like, I, I really kind of harangued my parents to uh, to get tickets to see, uh, um, uh, I guess, I don't know how well known they are now, but a sort of long, venerable British comedy group, the Baron Knights in Cabaret, at the, yes. at the um, uh, club in Solihull, kind of Cabaret night spot called the New Crester in Solihull. And... Um, and I was obsessed with the Baronites. I was I was quite a strange child, really. I was sort of. Um, <laughs> I saw the back for people who don't know the Baronites. They've been around since the, the sort of sixties, and um, their thing was that they would sort of release these songs that were kind of three song medleys of 
well-known hits, which they would write new uh, kind of comical lyrics to, uh, typically kind of outlandish sort of scenarios, and they'd um, and they had a very they had a very big hit at the end of uh, 1978 with uh, one of these uh, singles called "A Taste of Agro," which was uh, which so they kind of they sang new lyrics to uh, "Rivers of Babylon," which had just been a hit for Boney M, and. Uh, <laughs> And then, um, what was, uh, was it? Uh, the, another brick in the wall. And so, yeah, another. Anyway, and um, in a medley. Sorry, was this in a medley? It was a medley. It was a three-song medley. Rivers uh, of Babylon. <laughs> another brick in the wall. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to find out what the third one was. Uh, it'll come to me. I've just had a bit of a kind of the, the blank. <laughs> the, the, wow. the, so the first so with so with the rivers of Bag- Babylon, they've sat, so they sang. There's a dentist in Birmingham who fixed my crown, and while I slept, he filled my mouth with iron. Uh, <laughs> <they> have, <laughs> so I, well, I saw this on top of the pops, um, uh, and honestly, it was like punk for me. It was like my punk, because I didn't know. It, it seemed like the naughtiest thing anyone could do, to take someone else's song and write disrespectful lyrics over it. And and they had this kind of slightly cheeky, sport, naughty schoolboyish kind of air about them when they did it. And I actually thought that that was, I was, you know, it was a, an insurrectionary act that I was watching. So, um, and so I, it, I was so kind of had my head turned so sufficiently by this that um, they, it was my first record, it was my first seven-inch single. So anyway, and and because I was kind of quite weird, I. Carried on, they, they, you know, they stopped chart. They released lots more singles, but they stopped charting. But I would still the local record shop and order because it was like having a favorite football team or something. Like the Baron Knights were my band, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, when 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 they came to to do cabaret <laughs> uh, in in Birmingham, uh, sort of at least two years later, almost three years later. That's how loyal I was. Still buying their records. <laughs> You know, they did things like they're very um, they're very opportunistic. So when the whole sort of you know that when Dallas was really popular and there was that cliffhanger about who who shot Jr. Then they yes. really they released a single called "We Know Who Did It," which was all about <laughs> how you know. And then there was a dog. There was a famous dog trainer called Barbara Woodhouse. Oh yeah. And oh yes. Yeah, yeah. And they released a single called "The Sit Song," where one of them pretended to be Barbara Woodhouse. And um, and walkie, walkie, all of that, yeah, def- yeah. And then they had uh, put out a single called Mr. Rubik, uh, which was a kind of cash in on the Rubik's Cube. Wow, <laughs> they were kind of beseeching Mr. Rubik to tell them how to, to kind of solve the puzzle. I just thought this was all fantastic, you know. And so I was, um, I was taken to see the Baron Knights by my parents, uh, in uh, at the, the new Cresta Club in Solihull. It was very like chicken in a basket, kind of quite sort of um. Obviously, this is uh, 1981, so everyone was smoking. You know, you could barely see the yeah. band red smoke, and that's why I realised. You know, I realised now that's why those kind of um, those those nightclubs had little like those little kind of lights uh, sort of studded into the ground, so that you so that you could sort of follow where you were going because there was so much cigarette smoke that you needed yeah. to. They're almost like cat size or something, yeah. or like landing like a landing strip in, in an airport. <laughs> How old would you have been at that gig, Pete? I was uh, 11, I think, or 12. I think it was the summer of 1981, I think. And 
no, it was the autumn, uh, autumn of 1981. And, uh, and I took all my, I took, you know, I was like a complete, I, I, I had a carrier bag full of Barrow Nights records. So when they said that they'd be signing copies of their new album in the foyer afterwards, I kind of like, you know, marched along with my carrier bag full of Barrow Nights records. And they're all sort of sitting apart from each other. They're all just having a fag and kind of talking to a mate or whatever. And they saw this kind of, weird little of course you know they'd just been doing a fucking gig you know like they were knackered <laughs> you know, they only wanted to sign copies of their new album they they didn't want to sign like they didn't want some weird kid to present them with their entire back catalog <laughs> and say can you sign all of these please <laughs> were you were you like the were you the only 12 year old at that gig pete oh probably yeah i mean it was, <laughs> it was just you know I was just kind of like getting it wrong. I mean, as, as you know, like the book is really kind of a series of stories in which I just somehow kind of get it wrong. I'm really trying to participate in, in you know, the, 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 in, in life in, to try and get the hang of being a normal kid. And just somehow it wasn't really working for me because I was making, uh, fundamentally, I was making some bad decisions, such as being <laughs> an obsessive Baron Knights fan. And, I, know, I'm all right with that. I had Shaking Stevens. You had the Baron Knights, Pete. I, you know? tell you what, Alex, I was listening. Like, I really, um, I make these run when I go out for a run. I make these playlists of songs that you know would get me going. And I put um, this whole house is on my current playlist. It's such a well-produced record. I mean, it is just you cannot fault it. It's just sort of it totally stands up. It's kind of time, you know. It's time. It just doesn't really belong to any era. It's just a, such a it really kind of gets you going. I thought, you know, hats off, Shaky. You've really sort of <laughs> somehow managed to honor the spirit of rock and roll, that kind of like kind of that kind of the early kind of countryish kind of roots of rock and roll, that which you know you hear in those early Elvis singles. And yet it was well enough produced to, to kind of to kind of give Adam Adam and the answer run for his money. That's quite yeah. a trick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think um, if you if you got in a time machine and went back to like a a, a six year old's birthday party around about nineteen eighty two, so that's me basically. Everyone, <laughs> everyone would be perfecting that. Um, you know, the Elvis thing with the knees locked and the, knees. onto, oh, yeah. onto yeah. the tiptoes. Every kid was doing that. I can still do it. Yeah, I can. Oh. Oh, that's a boast. I know. I yeah, Thankfully, you can only see me from the shoulders up, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll adjust my camera later on. And uh... I don't know if I've mentioned this. I probably have, but I was, you know, massive shaky fan. And, and my mum says I, someone bought me a sweater. Or it was her, perhaps, that bought me a, a sweater with Shaking Stevens on doing that exact pose that we're on about. And she'd have to take it off me at night when I was asleep because I'd sleep in it. But next door... My best friend, she was the same age as me. Shaken Stevens was her uncle. And, uh, okay. and so me and my sisters, there would be moments where Shaken Stevens would be coming to visit and we'd be in the garden trying to peer over our fence so that we could get a glimpse of Shaky in the flesh. They it could... was literally the most exciting thing Ooh. as a, a young kid ever. Shaking Stevens is next door. Did they call him Uncle Shaky? You know, or was it just Uncle Mike? No, 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 uh, Mike. Yeah, I think I think Nicola called because we we grew up together, me and Nick, and I think she she called him Uncle Mike. Um, 
which just blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it would though, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was bonkers. You can barely compute. I bet he probably wanted to be left alone a bit, didn't he? I don't think he was. I don't think he liked children. But I got the vibe that he probably didn't like children very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some some um, clips of him on on chat shows or, or Saturday morning chat shows where he doesn't look over enamoured to be there. Even in the video for Merry Christmas, everyone, he's not he's not comfortable around. You know, he, he's really he's half he's looking at the clock on the wall, just waiting to be told that he's done enough, you know. Yeah. He's just, <laughs> oh, I've got other stories I'll have to tell you off. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've heard a couple as well. <laughs> yes. Anyway. So moving on, what then would you consider? So Chris and I have had to sort of make make the decision on, you know, what do we think the first gig that we were, we bought the ticket ourselves and what we consider is cool now obviously cool is different to so you know mine my, mine is possibly the shame and although i i felt like i sort of had to because i was going with my sister's boyfriend and it was i was more intrigued what was what era of shaman are we talking about oh it was 92 so um that first album wow. um, right and and it was it was a great concert it was a great concert but i think i think my first one would have been James, which was Laid tour and Radiohead supporting. I saw that tour. I remember that was the first time I heard them do Nice Dream. And I remember being like thinking, clocking that and thinking, oh, wow, can't wait to hear this on an album. Two years later, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, God, it was quite a wait, wasn't it? Because like, you know, the recording the bends uh, was not a harmonious process for them. But they were an amazing band to see around that time. I mean, they've always been an amazing band, though. I could, we could, I could talk about Radiohead for this whole podcast, to be honest. Yeah, me, me too, me too. Absolutely love them. So, what would you, what would you say was was yours then, Pete? Well, uh, similar situation to you. So, I did actually. No one forced me to buy tickets to go and see Toya at the Birmingham Odeon in uh, yes. in 1982. But um, I was, I, I was so. Um, I'm so far away from being in the cool gang at school and so, you know, <laughs> let's be frank, unpopular. That, um, but there, <laughs> was a, there was a girl in my class who, I'm, I'm not going to be able to name her because I had to change her name for the book and I can't remember what I called her in the book. <laughs> <laughs> there was a girl in my class who was a big toy fan who she was regarded as the kind of, she was like the prettiest girl in the class. And so I thought it'd be an amazing coup if I went to go, if I got tickets to see Toya. And she was so impressed by my, because she was a massive Toya fan. She was so impressed by my great taste that she kind of became sort of friendly to me. And, and you know, heaven forbid, even sort of ask me out. Now, I have to stress that this is, I don't, this is a plan that had no ending. This is because I, I was sort of, I knew nothing. I hadn't sort of, you know, like some boys in my class had started kind of, let's say, physically changing um, and, you know, um, you know, entering, <laughs> entering, you know, adolescence, as it were. Um, none of this had happened to me. So I wouldn't have known. There was nothing. It wasn't like I don't really know why I was so determined to sort of um, initiate a, a sort of process that <laughs> manifestly un would have been uncomfortable with. It was purely an attempt to sort of get some kind of leverage as someone 
so the the you know the the, the alpha kids in my class might turn around and say whoa you know Perfidi's you know I almost said her name <laughs> anyway it, it went wrong for all sorts of terrible reasons which I've kind of uh, mentioned in the book and it obviously didn't work and even if it had worked I wouldn't have known what to do with my new status um, so the actual <laughs> the actual first gig I, I went to for reasons of actually liking the band was um, Aztec Camera um, oh. in um, Aston University in uh, December uh, 1983. And that was on the back of a, an epiphanic kind of obsession I had with Aztec Camera after um, hearing, buying their uh, debut album, Highland Hard Raid. And for me, he was like kind of my sort of, you know, I guess he was my Bob Dylan, my every, all of that kind of rolled into my Morrissey, my Bob Dylan, my, all of that rolled into one. I was just sort of, he was like my first template of, of, of someone who, God, wouldn't it be amazing to be like him or wouldn't it be amazing to know what he knows? Because he was still very young. He was, I think, 18 or 19 when that album came out. Yeah. But he kind of, um, he had this amazing fringed suede jacket and he'd grown his hair a little bit longer. I had quite long hair as well. And uh, and I remember there was a video for a single off that album, Walk Out to Winter, which uh which was shown on breakfast televisions on TVAM, on the newly launched TVAM. At five to eight, they would show a video, a pop video for a new release. And, you know, just the last thing I did before I went to school was I would record that day's video and walk out to winter. And I, and I was obsessed, you know, kind of like, I guess it was probably like a crush, really. Um, I was just, obs- I'd just watch Roddy Frame over and over again in his suede jacket. And then later on, I bought the album. I remember my brother coming, my brother was four years older than me. You know, like, you know, older brothers can just walk into a room and just cut you dead, just completely flatten you with some well-chosen oh, work. Yeah. And he said, and he was looking at me, just adoring, staring at Roddy Frame adoringly. And he said, I just want, I'm just going to say this. Don't even think about buying a jacket like that because you will look like a complete twat in it. (laughs) 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 Oh, no, I was was going to do that. Just leave me alone. I was going to say he still had it, you know, um, two or or three years later when Somewhere in My Heart came out because I remember that was where they first... Came, mm. came into my kind of consciousness and he had these were they kind of like stonewashed jeans on and yeah and uh, the his, yeah and his guitar and he just looked and the white t-shirt the kind of you know nick came and luke as well it was kind of all about yeah. the same kind of Ooh, time nick came and wow yeah uh i remember he was they on a saturday superstore uh they <laughs> had, they had a thing called the pop panel uh, yes, and they um, so they got whoever the guests were on that morning show would gather around on a kind of bench, crescent shaped bench, and they'd sort of they'd re- they'd play three videos and they'd all say what they thought about it. And Kenneth Baker, the Secretary of State for Education, was uh, <laughs> I think he was the Secretary for Education. Very sure he was 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 one of the guests on there. <laughs> And uh, and I was very confused because he was, you know, he was a, a Tory and I hated the Tories, <laughs> as, as was mandatory. Uh, yes, exactly. In, uh, in 1987. <laughs> I'm not that I love them now, of course, but anyway, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> but it was like, 
uh, you know, I'm 52 now, and 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 if a concern, if a, if a member of the cabinet said they liked one of my favourite bands, I wouldn't be thrown into a tailspin like I was in 1987 when Kenneth Baker oh, yeah. said, "I rather liked that." It's a, and I rather like his look. Bit of a bit, of, bit. He's got a bit of Eddie Cochran about him. <laughs> I remember thinking, this is confusing. You know, like what? I don't. Why am I even supposed to think now? You know, but Roddy Frame loved that. It would be awful. Yeah, well, and you know, like it was like I remember another time on on the pop panel, there was a group called Thrashing Dubs, who uh, who whose career was instantly destroyed when Margaret Thatcher um, said that she liked that video. And oh god, that was it for Thrashing Dubs. That was she, they never recovered from that. It, wow. It'd be like it'd be like if Jacob Reese Mogg said, yeah. "Oh, I, I I love Santan Dave or or Stormzy." Yeah. My daughter mm-hmm. Grace would just be like. No, no, this is terrible. This could this could never happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 Dave would have to really issue, you know, a, a, a forthright rebuke, you know, a, <laughs> yes, at the next Brit Awards, exactly, <laughs> uh, in order to kind of shore up the situation. What do you consider your first gig in a professional capacity? Mm. Oh, well, um, what was the first gig I was uh, I reviewed for a music paper? Because um, how, how old would you have been, Pete, when you... Uh, about 22, I think. So I just finished university and I was getting... Uh, and Melody Maker offered to sort of try me out, as it were, you know. And uh, Was that through you contacting them, saying... Gives a job, gives a job, or I edited a fanzine which made it found its way onto the to the desks of a couple of uh, um, sort of senior senior writers at Melody Maker, and then they uh, one of them, the reviews editor Andrew Muller, suggested that um, said that you know if I wanted to try out um, reviewing, see if I could do a review, then you know, and and if it was any good, then um, they might sort of publish it. So. So I, I suggested a few possibilities, and one of them was, uh, so it was a group called the Sand Kings, who uh, were a West Midlands group, and late, probably best known for the fact that uh, Jazz Man, later of Babylon Zoo, was their lead singer. And uh, What? Yeah, Jazz Man. How old is Jazz Man? Well, I guess he's probably, uh, probably, he's probably in his mid-50s now, I would imagine, because we're all getting old, aren't we? <laughs> Wow, that's well. That's very funny because I feel like this this podcast is being hijacked by Jasmine and Babylon Zoo. In our last episode, Pete, we had James Walsh from Star Sailor. Yeah, yeah. In one of his first live ever performances as a kid in college with his band, they covered Spaceman by Babylon Zoo, really? and 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 I actually James was uh, did a, a gorilla uh, sort of busking gig at Tim Burgess's Final Adventures in Manchester and he played in Piccadilly train station. And so I went along and I actually had my own copy uh, of Babylon Zoo Spaceman that I, I presented to him. <laughs> and so, so, so Jasmine seems to be following us, Chris. I don't know what's going on here. It started off, it was Shawadi Wadi at the start of the, the podcast. So now it's Jasmine. Yeah, so. it's gone from Catherine Williams staring at Shawadi Wadi's balls in there. Hot in their uh, leggings. <laughs> wow. There's an image, eh? Yeah. You've not had your lunch yet, have you? 
Hang on, what body were wearing leggings? Yeah, she said they were like uh, up close yeah. underneath those jackets. They were like black spandex leggings, and she and said they just left little to the imagination. And she said, as a very young girl, she just was horrified. Should we say? Uh, <laughs> Dave Bartram's tuberous gonads. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what's for what's for lunch today, Pete? <laughs> yeah, I might, I might, I might skip lunch actually. No, yeah. uh, now, in between those two gigs, then, so we've had your first gig there. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the Aztec Camera, the Aztec Camera gig was quite a sort of, um, it's quite hard to get into because I joined the fan club and they, oh, right. um, so it was a televised gig. It was a, it was, it was recorded for a, a, a TV series called Rock Goes to College, where bands would, you know, play a student union somewhere. It was like a whistle test offshoot. And, oh, uh, right. okay. and they said, like, you know, like anyone who wants free tickets to go and see as, as it camera going to be in the next series of Rock Goes to College, but you have to be over 18 to get in. So that was a bit of a problem for me because I was 40 at this point. <laughs> and uh, but I was determined. I was somehow I was going to get into this Aztec camera gig, and and so I had to really plan and strategize. Well, the first thing I had to do was um, decide who I was going to take with me, and <laughs> and so I asked the oldest looking kid in my year at school if he wanted yes. to come to a gig with me. That was Imtiaz Ilahi. Um, who was in the class above me, uh, in, in the academic class above me, same, same age as me. His dad was a bus driver. Uh, I remember him well. And Imchaz had a lot of sort of, in, Imchaz kind of had a bit of quite a lot of downy kind of uh, fur on his face. Yes. Which made him look a little bit older. And uh, so he, he agreed to come with me. And I wore, I thought, okay, what do students, I need to look like a student. So... I looked in my, you know, fairly sparse wardrobe and there was a pair of mustard-coloured corduroy trousers. I thought, that's probably what students wear. They wear corduroy. <laughs> so, so I went to see it. So I had a pair of mustard-coloured corduroy trousers and a, and a baggy sort of just a jumper. And, um, and my hair was sort of quite long and sort of shaggy. So I tried to affect a kind of, kind of casual student-y sort of gait and I thought, I'll just probably like kind of, I'll just mooch in, you know. And it, on the tickets, it said sort of, uh, it said doors open at 6.45. And of course, I, God knows why they, I, we turned up, at, um, what would it have been? We turned up at uh, 7.30 and there wasn't a soul there. I mean, it was, we turned up way too early. I thought it got the wrong night. And so we were already sort of stuck out like sore thumbs. Oh, no. I'd nicked my... My brother's uh, NUS card and just removed the photograph of him and put a photograph of me on it. And they didn't even ask us for it in the end, because obviously what, what we all know now <laughs> is that these gigs are just kind of the security of these gigs, certainly in the 80s, was was, was kind of um, was was done by these just just listless kind of undergraduates who just waved me in, you know, and I just kind of like very passionately mouthed all of Roddy's lyrics back at him whilst he tried not to look at me because why on earth would you want to look at someone that looked like me passionately mouthing the words? I have no doubt Roddy Frame remembered you. Have you ever asked him? 
No, but I, I hope he doesn't. And I, similarly, I hope he doesn't remember all the fan letters I sent him. Uh, Excellent. Does he know about this? Surely you've interviewed him. I've interviewed him. I, I, I try and keep that information quite vague, just in case. He said, oh, you're that guy. Yes. You're that guy we put on the red list for all the rest of our gig. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? Meeting your heroes. Oh, no. Do you happen to have the ticket stub? Are you a ticket stub collector? I've got, the, I've got that ticket. I've, I've kept that ticket because it was quite a nice kind of card. I'll sort of, I'll send it to you after this. But I've got, yeah, yeah that was, a, yeah, that was a nice one. You know. Do you tend to hang on to tickets and memorabilia, or um, is it only select things? Or uh, there is a scrapbook that I've got. Some I, I don't, I've mislaid the scrapbook, but the scrapbook that's got most of my tickets in. I sort of kept them in my late teens. Then I kind of got. A bit bit aloof about it and not so much after that but i've got i've got a couple of yeah there's a there's a scrapbook there's a special special scrapbook which i didn't put tickets in but i put things that were just of of quote unquote historical importance and i think my yes my live aid ticket might be in that one and uh you were at live aid I was at live aid yeah so yeah so that's um right well that's an entire podcast on its own i think um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm. I, I'll tell you anything you like about what I oh, remember. About it. Well, what do you remember about the day when? Because uh, it's piping, piping hot. You, you wouldn't have known the exact lineup or much of the lineup when you, when you got there, because um, it was changing all the time anyway. So yeah, go. <laughs> Live Aid for me was a. Um, you know, I was very invested in Live Aid. I was very, I was very proud. I was a big. Again, you know, as I've said, you know, with regard to the uh, to Baron Knights, I had this, I had this weird, I was weirdly loyal towards bands that I liked. You know, I wasn't like, I couldn't be like a normal kid, you know, like, you know, the normal thing you would expect kids to do is just kind of like an artist while they're having hit singles and then move on. It's quite a merciless business being a young pop fan. But I was weirdly loyal. I kind of wanted, I, I almost thought that, you know, one day I might meet these people and they would test me and they say, how many of my records have you got? And then I would be able to be truly show my, and they'd say, yeah, you're cool. Come on the tour bus with us and join our gang. <laughs> and do your row levels. And, yeah, um, that's exactly how it works, Pete. Well, I, I would hope, well, I tell you what, weirdly enough, sometimes the actual it's actually weird when one of your musical heroes comes to your house because then you start to get slightly worried that they might think that you're a kind of mad stalker and what often happens is you kind of go through your records and you sort of hide about half the records you've got by them just in case they start to feel scared (laughs) Um, well you can't skip over that peach you cannot skip over that who has been to your house and whose records did you have to hide? Why well, I'm I, I <laughs> <laughs> in a weird confluence of events. Uh, um, we had some people over for dinner, and Neil Finn was one of them. And um, and it, and it, I just remember sort of thinking, this is kind of weird. This is sort of um, one day I thought that you know this is one the kind of weird logic, quote unquote logic that you that informs your decision to become a completist over an artist is that subconsciously you think that one day they might knock on the, their door and say, you know, for instance, hi Pete, it's my obviously Michael Stipe, you know who I am. I've just you go around, you make quite a lot of noise about how much of a fan of my band you are, but how much of a fan of my band are you really? I just thought I'm in I'm in town, so I thought I'd just come and check. And uh, <laughs> we are actually we are actually currently doing an audit to see who our absolute <laughs> who our biggest fan is. 
and yeah. you know once we once we've count once we've all the stats are in and we know who our biggest fan is that we thought we'd just invite them to um just hang around <laughs> with us forever <laughs> just to be clear about this you won't have to get a proper job yes make any other plans in your life you'll just be part of the rem family and we'll just look after you indefinitely and we'll th- we'll probably think of a nickname for you yeah <laughs> You can chip in though; it's not going to be horrible. You can chip in with the nickname as well, yeah. and if we like it, then you can keep that. So. And he'll go to Mike Mills, who kind of does all the kind of admin of this. He says, "Yeah, of course." See which nicknames are taken. Is is brains still available? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can have brains. Can, can I? Can I ask then? Because I, you know, I've met you. I've met you a few times, and I know that you are. A fanboy, and there's a couple of questions that come to mind. How, how do what kind of person are you? How do you act? So, you just sneaked in there, Neil Finn, which literally blows my mind. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't Crowded House partly what brought you and Kathleen, your wife, together? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, an appreciation uh, of Crowded House. Yeah, so okay, the, the, um, the, let's step through this. So, I uh, so. <laughs> So I, so I was, um, I was, I decided quite early on that you know, when when I became initially obsessed with Crowded House, they were not a particularly cool band for someone like me to get obsessed with because I was in the height yeah. of my kind of C eighty six had happened. I was kind of, you know, I was a sort of self avowed kind of indie kid, and. Uh, and I was getting in, trying to get into all sorts of cool things, you know, like you know, like get, getting in, developing interest in reggae and other, other kind of, you know, genres of music that I guess maybe you wouldn't expect all sixteen-year-olds in 1987 to get into. Yeah. But then, but anyway, I'd clocked "Don't Dream It's Over." I knew I loved that song. I'd bought oh. it, and um, I um, and then I. Um, and I bought the album after after the debut Credit House album, Temple of Low Men, and I quickly got obsessed with it. I realized sometimes I still think it might be my favorite Credit House album. It's just a very, very yeah. sort of emotionally dark record. Not what I was expecting, because they were very kind of peddled and promoted and marketed as you know, mainstream pop contenders, albeit adult pop contenders. And there was a real sort of emotional depth. The melodies were just intricate and beautiful and very kind of emo- drew from a deep emotional well. And they were, I was like, you know, I was hooked. And um, and so I kind of, I stayed hooked on them. You know, halfway through my degree, um, I, um, when they came back with uh, Woodface, I, um, I, I did a degree, my, I, I did my degree in West Wales in Lampeter. And uh, and to get to Lampeter from the from the board, they did these two. Lo- they did a sort of couple of gigs at the borderline just to sort of you know create some anticipation for Woodface, and um, and I couldn't get a ticket. I, it was sold out, but I'd heard that they would be releasing thirty sort of tickets on the night for people first come on a first come first serve basis. Um, the only way I could get from Lampeter to uh, the borderline in in London in a day was was if I got a um, got a bus. There was a bus that took you out of Lampeter and into Carmarthen, and then you got another bus, and eventually, 
you know, you get to, I think I got to the borderline at 3.30 and there were already like, like 40 people in the queue in front of me. Oh, no. And so I knew I kind of probably wasn't going to get in, but I couldn't get, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get home that night. So um, I, I was just there, you know, so I, I, I didn't have anything better to do. So I sort of joined the queue and, um, you know, met some really lovely people in the queue and, um, and the band turned up around like five thirty, six o'clock, took one look at the queue and they must have realised that a lot of the people that were queuing here, they knew the gig was sold out. They knew that most of the people in the in, in that queue were not going to get in. So they kind of popped in and then they disappeared. They re-emerged with their kind of with their instrument cases. Neil Finn, Neil and um and um uh and, and Tim had guitar cases, so did uh Nick Seymour, the, the the bassist. And then um Paul Hester, the drummer, grabs a massive cardboard box from, from a nearby yard and plonks it in front of him, gets a pair of brushes out, and they start doing an impromptu gig for the queue. Oh. They did about six songs just to sort of like play for the people who they didn't think were going to get in. It was amazing. Like the kind of the queue just oh, dissembles itself around them. Suddenly it's this little kind of guerrilla acoustic gig. I managed to um, climb up on top of a kind of post ne- the the next to a gate and just had a sort of little kind of grandstand view and it was amazing and um and then the queue reassembled itself because everyone knew who was next to them in, in them in the queue and then as it got closer to stage time i think they were crossing names off the guest list of people who were not likely to turn up and they were letting people in five at a time and literally like the minute they came on stage i was waved in i managed to get into the gig oh yes I know. Thank I'll be you. honest, that was that was causing me too much anxiety. A lovely story it was. I was causing me anxiety. It was amazing, you know, and that somehow like you know entrenched my adoration of them even further. I mean, you know, literally, I was I had to I, was, I didn't get back to Lampeter until the following afternoon, and uh, and then um, and anyway, so I started at Melody Maker. I was very I was very like low down in the packing order at Melody Maker. I'd left university. I didn't really have any other plan than, you know, if, you know, being adopted by REM and being given a nickname by them wasn't going to work, then um, my other plan was to just loiter in the offices of Melody Maker and be so annoying that eventually they would give me work to do in order to make me go away so they didn't have to look at me. And that plan worked a bit better. Um, (laughs) And... uh, they and then around this is late 1992 and you know and around the same time another Im- promising young writer who was kind of emerging on the scene was this uh, uh was this uh, this girl called Catelyn Moran who you may have heard of and um and we um and she sort of uh and I actually I was a huge fan of her writing because she was gay I never met her but I was like a massive fan of her writing and I was sort of um and so, you know, I, I would always look out for her name. And then like one day, uh, it was the first time we met, which was um, in September. Um, I think it was, uh, so it was uh, the end of September, 1992, about a month and a half after I'd just moved to London. She hadn't moved to London at that point. She was still living with her, with her family. And I was um, in uh, Riverside Studios in West London interviewing Levitation, uh, for um for, for a friend's fanzine and 
when my interview with uh, Levitation finished, uh, the band, Ter- I remember Terry Bickers from the band sort of looked at me and looked behind me and said, oh, well, our, our other interviews here, um, it's, it's, it's Kathleen Moran. You must know Kathleen Moran because she writes for Mildermaker as well. And I turned around and I thought, I was like, oh, wow, God. <laughs> and I was trying to, I remember sort of thinking, there is no way you're going to think I'm, I, I, I'm cool or interesting, but I need to somehow find a way to kind of at least give myself a sort of chance to make you think I'm cool or interesting. So, <laughs> so they said, the band, the band said, why don't you st- stick around? And when Catelyn's finished her interview, we'll all go down the pub together. So I thought, oh, that's great. You know, and so yes. we, went down the, we went down the pub and I just remember the, the, one thing, the one thing I thought, the one thing I know how to do is not talk unless I definitely can think of something funny to say. So even if I only think of three, like if, if I only think of three funny things to say all night, if they're the only fun, the only things I say, then it surely must follow that every single thing, I, I, every, every th- thought I have is funny and clever. <laughs> yeah. You were just 100% funny. I mean, I, I could not say, I could, next time I might talk would be much, um, you know, 1994. <laughs> <laughs> then my, my record would remain unbroken. And anyway. We, 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 need, we need Catelyn on the next episode to hear her side of the story and how much she actually thought was yeah, funny. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, we... Um, Anyway, they must have had, had it must have worked a little bit because um, she, she so it finished and it was quite you know she she didn't she didn't have a place she lived in Wolverhampton with her family still and uh, and we caught so we got on the train to go back to our respective houses and she said uh, I think I've missed my last train home and I sort of said okay well why you know um, you can come and crash on my sofa if you want you know she said oh, is that I would oh that'd be great thank you. And um, and as we were walking towards my little kind of one like bedsit in uh, Stockwell, I said, "There's one thing you should know about me before you come in." Other full disclosure sort of thing. I said, uh, "I'm I'm actually a really big fan of Crowded House because that was like the least cool. That was, was my way of saying, you know, like I'm I'm not I'm not cool. You know this." <laughs> This is a, <laughs> and then she turned around and said, oh, "Are you?" I said, "Yes." Said, I love them too, and and then we just spent the last like two hours talking about like why why we love uh, Neil Finn and his songwriting, and uh, oh. whatever happened to Kathleen Moran? Well, she um, she stayed over that night. She stayed. <laughs> I slept on the sofa. And she uh, she she slept in the bed because I didn't think she I still did think she there was any remote chance that she'd be interested in me, and uh, and then uh, and then I couldn't work out why she was kind of sick, was she was slightly arsy with me the following morning, um, so but yeah no I think she's doing all right <laughs> still I think I think I've put her off pretty much all music since but she still has time for credit has. Um, Yes. And anyway, yes. So yeah. So yes. anyway, yeah, one hey, one thing leads to another, and you know, and you know, suddenly, and uh, we. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what it why uh, Neil and and his wife Sharon ended up coming to our house. It was twenty fifteen, yes, and uh, I'd put um, I'd persuaded Neil to let me um, put out a a, a single of. A, a sort of seven-inch single of a, of a of a crowded house song called "Help Is Coming" because it was around the time 
those horrible sort of news images of uh, people sort of risking their lives to sort of come over on 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 dinghies um, uh, to to escape you know war in their own countries um, and um, yeah. and so there's a very beautiful crowded house song called Help Is Coming which is sort of which really presciently really sort of expresses. Um, the kind of hope that the people have in their minds that, that that you know when they try and find a safe place for to raise their families in you know this kind of belief that help might be coming and neil very kindly agreed to uh let us oversee the 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 uh release of help is coming with all the proceeds um um help helping the ongoing effort at the time orchestrated by save the children and, uh, and 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 Neil was in the UK at that time, and um, we, you know we had to sort of speak a lot on the phone and stuff to sort of engineer the you know publicity around it and so forth. And there was an amazing video film that was made to go with the song by Matt Whitecross, who's made lots of videos for Coldplay and directed oh, yeah. that amazing uh, Oasis uh, documentary. And yeah, um, yeah and anyway, so. Um, so they're in town anyway. So uh, I, I said, look, can we just, uh, we'd, we'd love to sort of like um, have you over for, for, for dinner and just to say thank you for all that, like for, you know, making this happen. And uh, so that was, so that was how I ended up um, um, sort of thinking, is he going to be terrified if he looks through my records and he sees, sees records he probably didn't even know that he'd, he'd, he'd made uh, in my records. Anyway, it didn't really come to that, thankfully. <laughs> so hopefully, won't, yeah. hopefully, you won't listen to this and be respectively <laughs> <laughs> sort of terrified. Oh, I don't know. He's a big fan of the Gig Stories podcast, Pete. kind of I mean I could, I could talk to you all day and I'm going to ch- chat to you for a little bit sure. longer but um, I'd like to hear about Live Aid and then we're going to take you into the quick fire round. So this was a digression because remember we started talking about how um, you know you sort of like so I was kind of bizarrely loyal towards um, bands uh, beyond yes, when they stopped yes. having hit and because somehow some kind of weird part of my subconscious thought they might somehow knock on my door and test test me to see if I was really as well as I was anyway one band I felt this way towards were the Boomtown Rats I really liked the Boomtown Rats a lot oh. when I was uh from about the age of nine I just thought Bob Geldof was just you know one cool customer you know and I thought he was like I didn't really understand why my brother and all these punk friends thought he was an idiot, you know, because I sort of thought that, you know, if you think about it, when you're nine, if you were nine and you had to form a punk band, you would probably call them something like the, the Boomtown Rats. That's quite a, like, a, it yeah. has a kind of gang thing going on. And uh, and I really liked the way he kind of leaned forward into the camera on top of the pops and sort of beckon you in, as if to say, I've just, I'm new in town and I've taken over the youth club and I'm going to make everything really cool and come and you know, yeah. di- disco this Tuesday, 6.30, bring lemonade. And um, 
<laughs> no squares. No squares. <laughs> yes, exactly that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No straights. <laughs> and uh, and I carried on, but I was very loyal towards the Boom Times, but right up until the they released an album in 1984 called In the Long Grass. Uh, and I was even buying their records, even at this point. But they they really, it looked like the writing was on the wall for them because no one really sort of uh, cared about them. And I remember Bob was so desperate to kind of reverse their ailing fortunes that they even released a single uh, which had, it was like a kind of picture, like a clear vinyl disc with a sort of ticket sealed into it. And the idea was they were trying to basically hype themselves into the charts. And the idea was that if you bought this seven inch single and pr produced it at a, one of the gigs on their forthcoming tour, you would be allowed into the gig for free. And um, <laughs> it, wow. fell, it fell, it fell foul of the chart regulations and, um, and it got, so it got banned from the charts. And Bob was so angry about this that he did an interview on the local TV uh, pop, the local news pop weekly slot, which was presented by Dave Bartram. Wally Wally. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I remember, uh, so Bobby sued this kind of tirade about how, you know, everyone was hype, you know, hype was everywhere. And this is, this is just like a real injustice because what could be more musical than offering someone a ticket to go and see your gig? And he was absolutely furious. And then he cuts back to Dave Bartram in the studio, who rather tartly says, well, he's got a lot to say for himself, hasn't he? And I remember thinking that there might be beef between Shabody Body and the Boontanos. I'd love that. That's the best beef ever, isn't it? So anyway, basically, so about a month later, um, you know, the, those news reports, you know, about the, the sort of famine in Ethiopia sort of happened and Band-Aid happens. And I just felt a huge rush of vindication because suddenly Bob Geldof yeah. was not only the hero of pop, he was the hero of everything. He was... He was a surprise, yeah. you know, the Bob I had faith in for all these years, this kind of Christ-like organiser, this galvanizer of young people <laughs> had finally found a mission that was, that was equivalent to his fantastic talents. And, uh, and so I personally felt very vindicated that, that Band-Aid was, was a success. And then when Live Aid happened, well, you know, I had to go, I had to go at all costs, I had to go to Live Aid. And the only reason I did go to Live Aid is because my, my poor mother, who was, um, who queued, uh, so it was the, day, the morning of Live Aid, I had to do a history GCSE exam. Uh, the, no, no, the morning that no, the, the tickets went on sale, I had to do a history GCSE exam. And and so so my 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 very kindly queued outside the one record shop in Birmingham, um, who was selling tickets that was selling tickets for live aid. She turned up there, even though it's Friday and it was like the day that they had to the busiest day. They had a fish and chip shop, and so that was the busiest, you know the, you have to get everything ready because obviously cut all the fish and chip all the potatoes. And somehow she sort of managed to find a way of queuing outside Cyclops Records in in Birmingham at seven thirty on the day that the tickets to Live Aid went on sale. And with about there were like about like there were about two people in the queue behind her that managed to get tickets. Um, so it was almost she we just about managed to get sort of tickets. So that was how I, I sort of ended up um, going to Live Aid. And it was, the weird thing was, I couldn't find anyone 
none of my friends were allowed because you had to go to London. None of my friends were allowed, allowed by their parents to um to go uh to, to go to library. So I ended up having to go with this girl who was friends with my older brother, who think I think might have slightly fancied my brother, and <laughs> and this was a kind of way of staying involved in in our life, in our setup, or whatever. Anyway, anyway she I said so. I, you know, she was four years older than me. It was a very one of those very awkward things where, you know, she probably she was very nice. She was lovely to me, but she probably didn't have much to say to me, and she probably wanted the, the ticket more than she wanted like to go with me. Why would she? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so who who when you were actually there we all know the obvious we all know the obvious freddie mercury you know yeah, stole the yeah. show um some people will talk about bono as well and say that that may be where really elevated yeah, yeah, them. Totally. tell us about someone else though who did you think they were just brilliant that perhaps people don't talk about well the funny thing was in in the in the actual place itself that you know it really was the queen came across just as well in the stadium as they did uh on tele you know when i saw them on telly afterwards um you two was a bit confusing because you no one knew no one in the stadium could tell where bono disappeared to for three minutes while he was kind of get, getting Brilliant. getting the girl from the audience to dance with her um it was still great, but it was not quite the same perspective that you had from elsewhere. I mean, I remember I was very excited, very excited about status quo, actually, doing rocking all over the world. Um, yeah. And that just seemed like a very affable way to sort of begin begin the day. Um, and, uh, I mean, those really were the best bits, to be honest. I remember, like, it got a little bit, dare I say, boring in the afternoon when you had, like, you know, I like Sade, but Sade wasn't necessarily what I what I wanted to hear. No. no. Am I right in saying that Adam and the Ants played their new singer? Adam Ant. It was just Adam Ant. And he, oh, it was just he Adam thought Ant. this would be the perfect opportunity with a global audience watching to relaunch himself with his new single, Viva La Rock. And, uh, yeah, Amazing. I mean, now we're all a bit cleverer now. I think, you know, I think really the way the the... The best way for Adam to have sold his to have really sold his new single would have been to have done, you know, stand and deliver or amp musical to remind people what that what they like about him. Yeah, but, you know, you're on a hiding tonight, but people still do it. That people still do. George Michael. Yeah, I know. What was that? That was uh, the the Olympics closing yes, ceremony. I know. I mean, new single. <laughs> What, George? He can do what he wants, though. George, we love you, but that's the maddest thing you've ever done. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Well, listen, we, we're going to crash on into the quickfire round because no, we don't have much time left. Um, so what, what's your favourite ever gig? Best gig you've been uh, to? Well, um, favourite ever gig? Um, I um, just uh, look... Um, you can edit out this very long pause. Um, um no, I really like it. I'm looking because as well, Pete. With with we are very much like yourself, Chris and I, and so we realise that any of these questions, the answers could change at any given moment. Because yeah. my yeah. favourite ever gig will change from day to day. I think, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I there are so many. I've got a long because I wrote a list. There are loads, but actually, on this particular occasion, I'm, I'm yeah. going to say uh, that it was. I'll tell you what, it, I, it, it would be, it would be uh, the Africa Express at Glastonbury because 
it was a sort of a, so it was Damon Albarn. It was like a it was extraordinary. It was like a five hour, you know, um, set um, obviously helmed by Damon Albarn with all sorts of yeah. people. I mean, the most amazing thing about it was that it wasn't built. I think it was two thousand seven that it happened. And it was at the park stage. I think it was the first year there was a park stage at Glastonbury. And I was reviewing for the Times. And at the time, the headliners on the pyramid stage and the other stage, I can't remember who they were, but none of them were sort of really grabbing me. And I was thinking, do I go with duty and just review who the headline, review the headliners are regardless? Or shall I just, because they're both pretty uninspiring, or shall I just quickly wander over to park stage and see what's happening because i noticed on the thing it said tbc and i got there and there were maybe like about 100 people at the most watching this thing that was clearly already amazing happening because it was damon alban and a load of other kind of musicians and uh, i think amadou and mariam were up there and, um, yeah. and at some point, Barbara Marl came up and you had people like Terry Hall coming on, doing a couple of specials. So Mick Jones from The Clash. I mean, it's just constant, ever-refreshing kind of lineup, shifting lineup. Um, of, 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 of Rashid Tahar did an amazing version of Rock the Casbah. I remember that. And it was, oh, wow. it was electrifying. And it just went on for hours and hours and hours. And like at some point, I looked behind me, like three hours later, I looked behind me and word has gotten around, but like the field is full. But um, that was one of those gigs where, like, you know, I was like 30, uh, I was in my mid 30s. And I was thinking, will I ever feel as completely will I ever feel that sort of sense of abandonment, that sense of just completely transcending at a gig the way I used to when I was in my teens. And like, I thought it might never happen to me again. And it happened to me uh, where, uh, literally when I least expected it to, because I didn't, Oh, I didn't yes. know what I love. I love that. And and it's still, I have that thought as well, Pete. And because of my obsessive nature with, music gigs i think oh i hope that feeling doesn't go but i do i do still get that it is it happens to me more now i think like, maybe i don't know if it works like this for anyone who's had children but being a parent definitely loose yes. you up in that way i was just going to say i yeah. think since being a dad and since going with with can i assume that you go to gigs with your girls now sometimes yeah definitely yeah yeah, yeah and have i mean especially because i know you and i sort of share glastonbury mm-hmm. as an experience yeah. and you know moments watching uh, watching my daughter on her mother's shoulders yeah. as a what would she have been 10 11 year old belting out every word as florence yeah, you know yeah. was on the stage would just oh it's just the greatest moment of my life yeah. I, in that time it takes you out of yourself and it allows you to experience things as you would experience them for the first time because you're watching that yeah. happen to this person who you love more than life itself. So that completely, it's amazing. I think I had that when I was at when I was at um, Latitude. We had taken a, a small piece of theatre to Latitude in oh, 2018, yeah. and I think my my son he was um, just he was just getting too just about too big to go on my shoulders but not quite <laughs> and it and he, he went on my shoulders and um there was a surprise guest it hadn't been it wasn't programmed it was a surprise guest and it was liam gallagher <laughs> and he 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 was absolutely on it he was he just packed it full of all the best oasis wow. stuff 
Gabe was on my shoulders. And I was like, yeah, doesn't get better. Get in. Yeah, exactly. So I want to go then from you mentioned Serene there, Pete. What's the most riotous gig you've ever been to? Well, right, it's probably, I would imagine something in my teens, really. I sort of um, just, uh, uh, I'm just trying to remember, I'm just to consult my list again. Um, Do you know, because I've, I've perhaps caught you off there, because it just came, as you said, that piece in Serenity, and I know you like all genres, and I was just thinking, what is, what's one that you just go, oh man, that was an absolute, that went crazy. That went absolutely crazy. Uh, so the 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 Mannix gigs at the Astoria at the end of 1994 with the final gigs I did with Richie, that was yeah, obviously intense for all sorts of reasons and um, and also um, and you were at you were at the London Astoria, yeah, yeah, the three Astoria they did three Astoria gigs on that's right, and you know it was just like you know it was intense to even begin to cover it you know i'm I'm glad you've backed that up as well because i was at because i do think i've said this at the beginning of when we first started this podcast i was at the cardiff astoria gig on that tour and from the off as soon as that siren went off and they came on i don't know if you remember they came on to chemical brothers remix to faster yeah yeah yeah. i'd for the first half of the opening, I, I was even, I was facing the wrong way. I didn't even realise because there was dry ice everywhere and the crowd just went absolutely crazy. And that absolutely is one of the most riotous tours yeah. I've ever been on. That was it, it, it was like it was amazing. total all or nothing stuff, you know. And um, it, was, it was, wasn't it? I've got um, I've got a VHS bootleg recording of it, which I must dig it out because I've got um, and see because I, you know, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it since it happened. Uh, so, I've, yeah, I've got that one as well. But you will have witnessed the the pillow fight, wouldn't you? The pillow fight. Oh, God, remind me about the pillow. Yes, God. They had. They ended up having a pillow yes, fight. And there was feathers yes, and everything God, everywhere. Oh my God, God, I totally forgotten about that. Oh my God. It's, it's the one tour, if I could, in a moment, if I could say to anyone, you must see this band. Now, we all know I'm self-confessed Mannix geek. Yeah. It, it is that. It is that tour, that gig. I loved I loved seeing them earlier on. The earlier gigs were great. Oh, yeah. But in that yeah. moment, that Holy Bible tour was just... It was. I, kind of like, I didn't listen to that record for years. Um, and... Uh... I've gone back to it lately. And I sort of feel like I can sort of I've got the kind of slight distance to 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 to, to just in, enjoy it as an incredible piece of music. But um, but I, you know I couldn't listen to it for a long time, not just because of what happened with Richie, but also I interviewed him at the time and I was very uncomfortable around. I didn't know how to be around them because I was kind of very awed by their intellect. So I would say the wrong things around them. And real, you know, I was constantly putting my foot in my mouth around them, and and so <laughs> quite slightly, but not, you know, I guess none of in the scheme of things, none of that matters now, really. You know, it's we're all, we're all young. Everyone was, you know, in, I now know as a fifty-two-year-old man that even in your twenties, you don't really know that much. Even even yeah. for people as fiercely intelligent as the Manics were then, probably, you know. You know, James, Nicky, and Sean probably feel like much wiser people than they were then. I don't know. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, no. um, what was your worst ever gig? Name names. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I remember going to an X Factor gig at the O2 Arena in in oh. two thousand. 
don't know, whatever year Ridian was in it. And um, oh, yeah. And I, I remember oh, God, thinking, right. this is just fucking, this is just depressing. It's like, so, you know, this is the manif- manifestation of Simon Cowell's desire to take the music industry back to a pre Beatles era when. When and of course he would because you know the the Beatles effectively seized the means of production and rendered people like Simon Cowell almost entirely redundant because you know Simon Cowell was you know it's like the 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 the, the archetypal middleman who kind of do, who divides songwriters from from artists in order to sort of. It's divide and rule, isn't it? To to elevate his name and what you have is this very neutered sort of you know dispiriting kind of spectacle um so i remember i remember yeah i was properly depressed watching the x factor live uh tour whenever that was yeah we'll t- we'll, we'll we'll take that great answer, we'll, great we'll answer. Take that. i know it's not very imaginative but there you go sorry no but that does it's it's in that it's in that moment and now uh, yep. having someone who has seen uh, hundreds and hundreds of gigs as, as you have tell me about a moment where um and i phrase it like this because i realize these questions again might change where you just saw the best ever support act and and perhaps they outshone yeah, the headline yeah. act who when was a time that you just were like oh my gosh there was a Japanese band called The Boredoms who I saw opening for John Cale at the Royal Festival Hall. And, oh, wow. And, you know, I, I, I like John Cale and, you know, he was, it was a perfectly good, you know, his set was perfectly good. But The Boredoms were doing this. The, 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 the boredom setup at the time is they had these kind of three uh, drum kits. I think it was three drum kits set up and it was this kind of like, just this elongated sort of space rock happening that was just so visceral and compelling and electrifying that it was actually impossible for anyone to follow it up. And so I think that maybe certainly the boredoms would be, um, would be up there. Um, I'm trying to think of any other, you mentioned um, Radiohead opening for James um, earlier on. I mean, James are fantastic and, you know, you know, I like him a lot, but, but, um, but you know that was that was a a tough one, and also sports team. I went to see sports team before Christmas uh, at Bristol Academy, and they were fantastic. They were really, really, yeah, brilliant. really, really good. But I did feel slightly sorry for them because Wet Leg were opening for them, and, <laughs> yes. and, and Wet Leg, you know, were were and continue to be having such a moment that. Um, that almost sort of stole their thunder. It didn't, but it, but it, it, it was kind of close. They're, they're doing that to everyone because before Christmas as well, Wet Leg was supporting, um, uh, oh my gosh, uh, as if I've just forgotten, my daughter would kill me, Bono's son. Oh, hey, bon- Bono's son. He's Bono's son in a band. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, oh my gosh. <gasps> this is awful because I really like them and the name's just forgotten. I, He's the singer. Did you say Bono's son? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The band supported. Uh, I saw. Uh, I was photographing High Flying Birds. No Gallagher and High Flying Birds. Inhaler. I to them. Inhaler. Oh, right. that's Inhaler. It. And I said to my mate, you know, the, he's got a real sound of Bono. <laughs> really sounds. It really sounds like early Bono. Oh, wow. Hang on. The, yeah. Here's a moment here, Chris. I just need to maybe enjoy or just make notice when Pete. You must know Inhaler. Surely. 
I've heard of I've heard of Inhaler. I've, uh, no, I'm not sure I do. No. Ah, oh, they can't be a band a few, I've heard of. They've been around a few years. Oh God, there's like I'm really not that. I mean, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. You know, I'm not as abreast of things. Yeah, me too. But, uh, well, they they they're pretty. Um, 2019, maybe. Yeah, yeah they're pretty. You yeah. too. Two or three years, too, but in their in their own way, I don't think it's fair just to keep. But he is the spit of his dad and his performance as well. Okay. And they they already sat as a band sound like they've been together for years. And yeah. I took my daughter to see him before Christmas, and they had wet legs supporting them. And it was actually the last night of the tour, right. and unbeknownst to the band, hmm. um, halfway through, they um, they I'm assuming it'll be their tour manager and whoever came on in high vis jackets, and they brought on a chaise long and put it on the stage <laughs> and, they, and they had to sign for it yeah oh yeah he made them sign for it as though he was like amazon sort of thing and the bass player sat and on I'm it, so and played on that. it genius genius the yeah, signing they just laugh the signing for it especially Brilliant. that's a good wet leg great one Let's hear your uh, fantasy festival. And as we've said for a couple of episodes now, we realise that our good friend Sean Keevney has something similar. Is it? Um, yeah, uh, but you had the idea first, so. Well, I can't say that because, you know, we haven't. Yeah, but Pete, Pete can say that. Yeah, Pete okay, Pete can say that. We invented the wheel here. And as I say, I would love to have Sean on and, and hear his. Um, but we obviously don't have a whole podcast to do it. Ours is, uh, ours is a lot a lot shorter but doesn't everyone just say the Beatles is that is that or can you not have no no and we point again James Walsh from Star Sailor he actually he chose Paul McCartney just ahead of the charlatans because I said to him are you going to say the Beatles and he said no no I don't want the Beatles to headline I want Paul McCartney and no one says the Beatles. Everyone backs out of saying the Beatles, which I find very, very interesting. So it's a day festival. Okay. You have four acts. Yeah. Okay. Um, who? But who is? And it's a long. It, it, it's a long, long afternoon. Who? Who's opening this? This Perfides Fest. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to open up with. Um, the uh oh god i've got such a long list here well i've got it can, it, can, it. And can it be a band uh, can you go back in time so it can be can it be yep. a band in- okay well i never got to see yep. dex's midnight runners so the two ray a so the two ray a lineup of dex's midnight runners so that i could finally get to see them and um you know that's going to be amazing and then oh, you're going to open with that oh maybe not open with them okay i know yeah, no, gonna- no 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 no, I'm. I you, you you've done it. That is. I mean, those other bands are going to be like, oh wow, we've got to. I'm going to we've, open. We've got to follow that. I'm going to open with. Uh, there was like a super group that was formed uh, about, I don't know, maybe about six years ago, which featured various members of people like Robin Petnold from Fleet Foxes were in it, and various other people. I think uh, one of. Uh, I want to say Beach House, maybe. Um, yeah, anyway, they were for they they were called they called themselves the No Other Supergroup, the Gene Clark No Other Supergroup, and they did the entirety of Gene Clark's amazing No Other album. And I've seen YouTube, <laughs> I've seen YouTube footage of it, and it's absolutely stunning. And had I known this was happening at the time, I would have, you know, I would have done anything to get there and see it. So, the No Other Supergroup is going to start start off. And then, I like that. 
And then, I know this isn't cool. Do I care? It doesn't matter. Care. No. Um, 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 the you know you know you know when Sting left the police and he did uh, and he did that Bring on the Night film. He got these shit hot jazz musicians yeah. and they did this kind of live film called Bring on the Night, and they uh, yeah. world tour with those musicians. I think that was, I think mm. that band was amazing. They sounded incredible. Oh. So I'd have the- Branford Marsalis and Branford Marsalis, uh, Omar Hakim. Was it Omar Hakim? Yeah. Kenny Kirkland, just the best yeah. band ever. Um, I, I could yeah. have sat here all week and would never have guessed that one. So I want to, well, again, because I never got to see them, so I want to see Sting and his Bring On The Night Band just do those amazing yeah. arrangements of those songs. And then... I'm going to throw I'm going to throw a curveball in here. Yeah. You've had two acts. Yeah. We're going to have a break. And during the break, you're going to show a music documentary. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, which music documentary are you going to show on the big screens? Uh, well, something you need it to be something that would that wouldn't ruin the mood, would you? Uh, uh, so um, I'm just trying to. Oh man! Oh, hang on. Well, you know, I mean, I've already watched Get Back three times, and I'm not bored of it. So uh, let's, you know, <laughs> let's do Get Back. Obviously, you know, I'll be talking about yeah. it all the day. all episodes. This is going to be a five day festival. I'll be talking about it until I, the day I die, anyway. So, uh, as we, as we all and then so, yeah, um, so that's that. And then, um, so we've had that. Everyone's been to the toilet, washed their hands, yeah, gone home, see their parents, day. came back. Um, exactly. And, uh, and have we got two more? Are we bringing Dexies on? Is, is this when Dexies come on? Uh, we've got two. No, I've got two bands left, haven't I? I've got yeah. two acts left, so I'm going to go for. I recently bought a live album, which uh, I is just fantastic. Uh, uh, Linton Quasi Johnson recorded in 1984. It's called In Concert with the Dub Band, and it's just Amazing. absolutely electrifying. And again, I've never seen Linton Quasi Johnson live, and that iteration of that band is just awesome. So I that's my third act and then we finish Perfect. and we finish with uh with uh dex's midnight the tria incarnation of dex's midnight runners um and um that's that's gonna be the best day of my life brilliant that is a belter thank you that's very a much. belter thank you guys love it i love that i would i would i would buy a ticket to that I'd buy a ticket to that festival. Let's make that happen. Yeah, uh, slightly impossible, but uh, it would be it would be nice. <laughs> I mean, I've got, <laughs> Go I've on, got like literally like a list of twenty other bands who I'd have on. <laughs> of course, you have, and that's well, exactly what I'd expect as well. Anyway, we'll ask it again in episode two, Please. in part two. <laughs> of um, so we're going we're going to crash on last last couple of questions really quickly. Um, who do you recommend we go and see live? We've all been um, hibernating like hedgehogs. Mm. Um, who who should we go and see live? Well, I'll point you to the last gig I went to see, which was uh, which was sports team with my daughter Dora, who very yeah. kindly bought us tickets to go and see them, and uh, that was totally life affirming. And uh, and you and you know maybe wet leg will turn up again too. So yes, yeah, brilliant. Love Honest. that hell of a gig. And then we bring this to an end. It's uh, it's all about live music, and you just mentioned that you've just recently bought a a, a live album. Mm. We just want you to leave us with a recommendation for for us and the listener of, and it can be your choice of live something. It could be a live album, it could be just a live track. Mm. Um, I was watching last night um, Bruce Springsteen yeah. uh, doing "Born in the USA" from twenty thirteen. 
because I wanted to know how it sounded like sort of more yeah, recently. Yeah. And I, I must have I must have put it on repeat three or four times. It was just in, incredible. Or it could just be a a live video, like a couple of people have mentioned, yeah. you know, the video of Prince at the... Uh, yeah, well, that's, um, yeah, that's it. That's the go-to, isn't it? Okay. I'll, I'll, which I'll be, is brilliant. I'll be brief. I'll be... Um, so two live albums that I recommend uh, uh, would be... So I've mentioned the Linda Quizzy Johnson one. Another reggae yes. one, which everyone, if you haven't heard it, is absolute essential listening, is Misty and Roots Live at the Counter Eurovision, which was an event held, I think, in... Belgium, I want to say. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. In 1979, and it's uh, it's just Roots Reggae recorded immaculately. Brilliant energy about it. The songs are beautiful. Uh, the entire thing, beginning to end, is just just masterful. And there's also a live album that came out very recently, The The uh, Comeback Tour, which... Um, and actually, the DVD that comes with it, it's actually beautifully shot. That's a real... For, for a, to, to see how a live performance can work brilliantly on screen i'd say this new uh the the album the light the comeback tour um especially with the visuals is 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 directed by tim pope it looks looks and sounds stunning and a lot of the songs i think really do exceed the recorded versions so that's uh and then in terms of the footage the um it, like if in terms of like youtube go to moments i would sort of yes i've got to mention uh dex's midnight runners 1982 performance on the tube because i devote almost an entire chapter to it in my book and it's yes it's the greatest live performance televised live performance of all time i really do believe that and then if you want to cheer yourself up Actually, no. And then actually the opposite. If you want to actually, if you want an improbably sort of um, sad, really, um, and it's kind of a weird thing for me to recommend. But actually, I really like finding moments of emotional intensity in, in, in unlikely places. And I'm going to drop another name here, but the, uh, Russell T. Davis turned me on to this. Um, but he said, he just read my book and he said, um, I, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone, but there's an amazing performance of L Lena Zavaroni doing a song called Going Nowhere on YouTube. It's just a light entertainment show from the early 80s. God knows where it came from. I don't know what it is, but it's one of the most heart-stopping, difficult-to-watch performances I've ever seen in my life. Lena Zavaroni, Going Nowhere. And then you'll want to cheer wow. yourself up. You'll want to cheer yourself up after that. So... <laughs> I will go. Uh, can I can I direct you to? Do you remember Ottawan who did DISCO? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. Another single they released around the same time as DISCO was a big European hit called Crazy Music, and there's a there's a wonderful version of it they do in red in red in the Kremlin with the Rus with the Russian Red Army Choir, and. <laughs> And I can't even begin to describe how strange but uplifting it is. So, oh, I can't. That wait. is bright. I've not seen that. Ottawan and the Red Army Choir doing crazy music. Listen, Pete, I, this has been an absolute joy. And I know I said it before, but we need to we need to have part oh, I'd two. Be I can't. I, also, um, I'm loving your book, but I'm listening to it. I've I've got the audio book, and I'm listening to it, and it, it almost I, I I like it in your voice. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Um, thank you. It's lovely. And there are two bits that I really wanted to mention. One is just being reminded of Dial-A-Disc, which I <laughs> hadn't thought about for, for years and years, but I remember 
I remember listening to the the Stray Cats on the phone yeah. in my mum and dad's house, and it, and also the other thing is just how amazing the parties sound like in the back room of your mum and dad's chippy. It just sounds yeah like every kid's dream. I was I was took it for granted really. I'm very lucky. I could yeah. I'd I'd recommend a chip shop for anyone to have a party, especially if there are definitely pinball machines. You can't bet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a it's a cracking read. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, not and to, not at all. Not at all. to our listeners, if you've not already ahead of the game and, and read Broken Greek, do it. Seek it out Thank in your you. bookshops and have a listen. Thank you, Pete Bafides. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, guys. Speak soon. Thank you, mate. And there we have it, the wonderful Pete Bafides, everyone. I told you. Oh, I, I could have genuinely, oh, I say this all the time, don't I? I'm so boring that the interview could just go on and on. But it's true, we just have some amazing guests that just make it so easy to talk to. And um, I, I, we say we're going to get these guests back on, and I would love to do that. But Pete, we absolutely, in fact, we have to get Pete back on because... He didn't tell us his anecdote about a uh, Swedish band, the Cardigans. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, Chris, but it is it's really, it's really amusing. I think and you've told me, me the I think you've told me the story before and I've have I? promptly forgotten it. So um uh, yes. It's, it's very amusing. We'll have to get him back on. But yeah, well, he's he's um heavy penciled. We've we've heavy penciled him. But it's great. And I love that Pete loves crowded house. Because yeah. I've always loved Crowded House and some of my friends were just like, what, Winters? You like Crowded House? And I just think they're fantastic. I love it. So, Pete, I love you for loving Crowded House. And how funny is that, having Neil Finn come over to dinner? I know. Do you remember um, Dial-A-Disc? Do you remember that at all? You do? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that was completely... That was about... Was that you or Pete that brought it up? I brought it up because um, yes, it, right. it did... It did yeah, it, it took me right back. But I, I did it from a house. But he, in in his book, he talks about doing it from a phone box. So he was going to a phone <laughs> box and putting, yes. you know, two P's and ten like, P's in and listening to music. Like, what were we doing paying for, like, the worst sound ever? Well, yeah, but also, remember... It was terrible. We, we did have such a thing as the speaking clock where we would phone up a number and find out what the time was. That was exciting. That was. It was crazy. I used, to, I used to enjoy I used to enjoy the the speaking clock. Let me just ask you, Chris. Go on. If you were to have a musician and their partner come to your house for dinner, I'm putting you on the spot here. Who would you most be nervous about having because of that um, worry about being just an embarrassing fanboy? Oh, Tim Booth. <laughs> Yeah, no question. <laughs> straight in. He's straight in with, with James, really. Yeah, or Jim Glenny or Larry Gott yeah. or, you know, Saul Davis or Andy Diagram. Yeah, just just James, basically. <laughs> I love that. I love And what would you serve him? What would you well, make would, for him? I, I mean, he's definitely vegetarian. I think he might even be vegan. So I would probably uh, not roast 
or um, <laughs> a stuffed stuffed pepper with mushrooms, obviously, because they all oh love that, God. don't they? The veggies. <laughs> they all love that. I, I think I I'm speaking to a veggie, aren't I? Um, so yeah. So, <laughs> so you love a nut roast or a stuffed pepper? I love. Oh, I love stuffing my peppers. It's yeah. great. Oh. Peeper Feedies, thank you so much. Check out the website because um, yeah. there are videos on there that really shouldn't be on the same web page as each other, but they are. You'd never guess it, would you? No, you'd never guess. So, um, yeah, I, I, I and there's a couple more that I think I'm going to put on because um, it was Mike Batt's birthday a couple of days ago. That's and, right, yeah. And Pete was wishing him happy birthday and he put a bit of footage on where Mike played in a band for the launch of Broken Greek. And yeah, yep. so it's quite, I, I love it when previous guests kind of are I mean, yeah. kind of together. Involved. Yeah. And if you're, so, if you're a reader or if you actually listen to um, uh, audiobooks, Broken Greek, get your ears and eyes on that because it is just a fantastic book. You will love it. I promise. I promise you. Get it on. Get it on. Okay, so thank you for joining us. And we will be here with another splendid guest very, very shortly. We will indeed. And you can keep in contact with us, as always, on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Gig Stories Pod. And keep sending your messages, your pictures of merchandise, your own answers to the questions we ask of favorite gig loudest gig and any experiences and anecdotes and then um, let us know as well who you'd love to hear on this podcast and um if they're daft suggestions we'll just never be able to get them on because i'm not even sure um marvin gay is still with us anymore bless his heart um that would be a good one can you imagine interviewing marvin gay yeah yeah but he's gonna have to wait because we've got bet medler in a couple of weeks so yeah. <laughs> yes, we have. Right after uh, Sting and Elton John. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We love you lots, and we'll see you very soon. Bye bye. See you next time.